You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is David J. Friedman, founder and CEO of CultureWise and the author of two books, Culture by Design and Fundamentally Different. His leadership story began in the 1980s, where he cut his teeth as president of RSI, an award-winning employee benefits firm in the Philadelphia area. In 2006, RSI was the only company to win New Jersey's highest award for quality, the Governor's Award for Performance Excellence. It was their unique culture that was the foundation for their success. In 2011, David published his first book, Fundamentally Different, which is based on the insights he learned and taught throughout his leadership career. In 2018, he published his second book, Culture by Design, which quickly became the go-to manual for companies looking to truly operationalize their culture. In 2021, he published its second edition, updating his original work to address the challenges of the new remote workforce. With his team at High Performance Culture, he created the CultureWise operating system, which is now used by nearly 1,000 companies across North America. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and David discuss how people are your most significant and sustainable competitive advantage, why defining fundamental behaviors is more important than defining core values, building impactful company rituals that will last, and how to select a good culture fit and how to properly integrate them into your business. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett, and today we have David Friedman with us, CEO of CultureWise. David, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Ron. It's a pleasure to get a chance to spend some time with you. Yeah, so so quickly, I uh, I have had one of David's many books, actually, uh, Culture by Design. I had this on my shelf for quite some time, and you know, two months ago, I took a just a, I'll call it a mini sabbatical, a, a trip to Tulum, uh, by myself, and I grabbed a bunch of books, and I was like, I, I need to grab this book because, you know, the I guess it's the seven, the eight drivers. A lot of those were consistent with some of my own thought process. I thought I need to read this and see what's going on. And so, as I got down there, I I bite into the book. I like to say bite because it was very tasty. And as I was reading through, I was like, wow, this is really like excellent, you know. And I'm and I'm gonna say I'm a culture snob. I'm like a food snob, right? And so mm-hmm. I. I think a few things, you know, I think I wrote to you, I was like, wow, I think you beat me. This is an incredible book, you know, and um, it, it's it's laid out fabulously. So I'm excited to, to have you today to, to discuss a few things. And then as we were discussing before we started, you, you think differently about some of the stuff. This isn't the conventional, yes. here's how everyone does it. And I'm just going to tell you a little more about that, which I, I got excited about. And so, David, before we begin... And, and, and I hate to have you repeat some of these things, but give us just the, the, the listeners a flavor of who you are and sure. how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so Ron, I I'm come from the Philadelphia area, southern New Jersey, specifically in the U.S., and uh, I spent 27 years building, it was an employee benefits consulting company, and I grew that company from two people to well over 100 people, and I was the CEO of the company, and we were a very successful company, seven or eight times named one of the best places to work in our region, five or six times one of the fastest growing companies. But all of our success, all of it, was based upon the culture that we built in that company. And as the CEO of the company, I did a lot of things in a very intentional and systematic way to create that culture. So, so Dave, I, before you, yeah, before you sure, keep going, go. I need to ask a few questions here. Absolutely, go for it. So, so was there a pivot for you or was it like, I'm just day one, two yeah. employees, I'm always going to do this? Yeah, it's a great question, Ron. The pivot for me 
was very early on when in the early days of my company, it was mostly family people. Um, I have several siblings that worked with me, spouse, uh, several in-laws that worked with me, cousins, a bunch of family people. And when we began to hire people that weren't in my family, I had this recognition that I can't assume that they all think like I think, that if I want them to do things in a certain way, I have to articulate what those things are and teach it to them. And, and, and I'm somebody, as you'll learn, I have extraordinarily high standards for myself and everybody around me. And if I'm going to run a company, there's going to be a way that we're going to do things in this company. And so in the early days of that, honestly, I was not thinking about that as culture. I was just thinking of it about as standards. There's a set of standards how I want that. This is how we're going to operate. You run my company. This is the way we do things here. And it was only in retrospect that I realized, well, I guess that's kind of what culture really is. But I wasn't thinking of it back then. This is back in the 80s. So and you I weren't following a playbook. There was no, no playbook you were following. You were just, no, just no. naturally I was just doing my thing. Okay. And I would tell you, you know, with regard to the question about the playbook, as we'll, you know, I'll share throughout our, our conversation here, almost everything that I did was very intuitive for me. So I feel fortunate. I happen to have, I think, pretty good leadership instincts. And so most of the things that I did in that career were pretty intuitive, instinctive for me. And most of them worked really well. But I am also very reflective, as I imagine you are. And so I would do things, most of which worked well. And then I'd stop and think, wow, that was really interesting. That worked pretty darn well. I wonder what's going on here, because there must be principles of leadership, of organizational behavior, of, of organizational dynamics that are going on here. I didn't know them. I wasn't following a playbook. I'm just being me. But these, things, th these principles are operating. If I could stop and I could reflect upon my observations and I could begin to discern what those principles are and start to articulate them for the people around me, now we could start teaching this stuff and we could do this more intentionally instead of simply relying upon my instincts. And so almost everything that I've created, and I suppose it's one of the reasons, as we'll talk about, that some of my material bucks conventional wisdom, because it's just based on what I've done and observed and thought about. It's not based on what I read or heard from somebody else. And I just follow my instincts about it. And, and by the way, and I want you to continue on this path, but I, I love that because I'll tell you what I found frustrating um, was I found that there were people and look I'll, I'll even say like a simon cynic i'm just going to use his name that would get people um you know really excited and and get them to believe that treating people well is the right thing to do but a lot of the content was missing the how i was always i was yeah. always okay I, I fine i agree how do i do this right yes yep and and the how doesn't have to be complicated you know it's funny i've done oh close to and i don't exaggerate when i say this number i've done somewhere toward about a thousand workshops on this material. So I've taught this to thousands and thousands of CEOs. And every time they hear it, what they always say is, oh my God, finally somebody's cut through all the BS mm -hmm. and made this clear and concrete and actionable and given us the how. But everybody talks about how important it is, but nobody talks right. about how do we do it. And when I teach it to people, they say, oh my God, that makes the why didn't I think of this myself? That's so darn obvious is right. what people say all the time.
So, so you build the company, you get to a hundred people and then you sold, I sold the company. So right. I, you know, I, I was never, I was in the insurance industry. That is not a very exciting industry. I don't know if security was for you, but insurance wasn't for me. And so I never thought I'd spend my whole life doing that. So it, it, I accomplished all that was interesting for me to accomplish, sold the company, was too young to be retired, but I wasn't sure what I would do next. I just figured life will show me where I should be. And I always knew that the, 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 the things that we had done around culture is based upon a system that I created that I know we'll talk about that I called the fundamentals. And this will make more sense to your audience shortly. But I always knew someday I was going to write, write a book about our fundamentals. I just knew I was going to do that. And so I sat down and I, I decided I better write this book now because I tend to be forward thinking and not backward thinking. And I realized if I find a new industry to go into like you did, well, this will just be my old stuff. I'll be moving on and I'll never write that book. So I better write that book now so I can put it to bed and say, I got that done. All right, that's over. And what ended up happening is people got a lot of value from the book. It, my first book was called Fundamentally Different. And people got a lot of value from it. And it led to people asking me to speak about it. And as people heard me speak, especially, you're probably familiar with Vistage in, in Canada. Yes. I know you call it tech in Canada. In the US, they call it Vistage. I'm actually going to be in Canada in June for a couple of uh, Tech Canada talks. But somebody asked me to speak to a Vistage group in the United States, and I didn't even know what Vistage was, but I spoke to this group, and, and that led to other groups asking me to speak. And as people heard me speak, some said, hey, could I hire you to help me do that in my company? And next thing I knew, I was launching my second career. And so in this second career, I've written a couple of other books about this topic. I've built another company that helps people do this, and I've done close to a thousand workshops and worked with somewhere in the neighborhood of about 700 companies wow. helping them implement this specific methodology that I created. Well, you know, it's funny because there's that saying, right? Like, like culture eats strategy for breakfast, which I actually don't agree with. I actually mm -hmm. think I don't agree with that statement or the other way around. I, I think you have to be strategic about your culture. It's, it's a, sure. that simple, you know? I agree with you. Culture is a strategic topic. And one of the things, one of the foundations of the, the principles that I teach people is that if you understand how much impact your culture has on every aspect of your company, not just your ability to hire and attract the people and retain them, but, your, but it affects people's, the pride they take in the quality of their work. It affects how collaborative they, were, they are, how innovative they are, how, how they deliver service to whoever your customers may be. If we understand the impact that culture has, then I say we should be as, as systematic, as process-oriented about our culture as we are about sales, finances, operations, and everything else 100%. that's important in our company. And that, to add one more thing as it relates to strategy, I would say that almost every one of your listeners, if they're leaders of companies, almost every one of us is in a commoditized business where you weren't the only one doing security and you're not the only one doing real estate right now. And there are other people do whatever it is that we do. And if you have some differentiation where maybe you've got a product or a service that nobody else has, how long do you think that's going to last? Right. Not long. Pretty soon, everybody's going to have the same thing and we're back to zero and we're all commoditized. So in that kind of a commoditized environment, if you look at the companies that are successful in that environment, my experience is that the successful ones are successful not because they have some unique product and service, 
they're successful because their people are better than everybody else's people. And if you could find a way to get your people to be better than everybody else's people, not only is that the most significant, I would say, competitive advantage you could create in a commoditized world, but it's also the most sustainable competitive advantage because it's a lot harder to copy. So to right. me, it's a, it is, it's not an HR topic. It's a strategy. It's a CEO leadership strategic positioning topic. Yeah, I and couldn't so many agree leaders more. don't get that. Uh, yeah, I think you you put it so beautifully. You know, I my version of that same message would be uh, more of a sports analogy. I say, look, you know, if you, if you think of business like sports, you're trying to attract the best players and getting them playing the really well together and you win the game, you know, and, and we're saying the yeah. same thing. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, you're, you're, you're saying principles and, and I'm, I was going through the book before we came on. I think that's your language for values, right? Or are you saying fundamentals? Because well, you, you'll say fundamentals and principles. Can you explain? Yeah, it, it, this is a really important topic, Ron. So, and this is the first place in which I depart from conventional wisdom. So everybody loves to talk about their values and their core values. And, and they, they always, the, the conventional wisdom is the first thing you got to do is define your vision, mission, and core values. And I actually depart from that in that I make a big language distinction. And this is, this is more than just semantics. So it's really important. I make a big distinction between what I call values and what I call behaviors, because I think they're different from each other. And I think, again, the difference is really significant. So let me explain the difference and why this is such a big issue. So a value to me is typically an abstract concept. So examples of values are quality, integrity, loyalty, respect, commit, you know, compassion, commitment, these kinds of ideas, innovation. Behaviors, in contrast, are actions. They're things I can see people doing. So some of the behaviors that I teach in my own company are things like honor commitments. That's something you do. Practice blameless problem solving. Get clear on expectations. Be a fanatic about response time. Follow up on everything. These are actions that people do. Right. So a value is an abstract idea where behavior is an action. The reason that this is important and not just semantics, is that the problem with the conventional core values that everybody comes up with is they tend to, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, they tend to be so abstract and so nebulous that they mean too many different things to different people, and right. they therefore become very difficult to operationalize. It is very difficult to coach somebody about their values, but I could coach them all day long about what I see them doing or maybe not doing. And so behaviors are way more action oriented. Hmm. I give behaviors a name, I call them fundamentals. It's just my nomenclature for a behavior. So yeah. a fundamental is the same thing as a behavior. So just like in sports and music and other things, there's fundamentals, there's fundamentals in, in business um, and how we operate. So the first thing that I teach people to do is to define their culture, not in terms of the traditional big broad core values, but rather in terms of the behaviors that you say, if I could get our people doing these things consistently, man, we'd be taking no prisoners. We'd be in one right. amazing company. And I call those fundamentals. And what's interesting is, is when I teach this to, to leaders, and we spend a lot of time talking about values versus behaviors and why behaviors are so important. When I teach this, almost always, the response from CEOs and leaders is, that makes a lot more sense to me. 
and they they could you know their employees want that clarity they're begging for that clarity and it's just so much easier to teach and coach and operationalize right. a set of behaviors than this big broad lofty values that we may believe in we may believe those values and and, and i care about them and they look good on the website but they're really hard to operationalize behaviors are the key to being able to do that you know, it's interesting. So in our company, we would have three values, but then under each of those would would be the behaviors of those values to make sure it's yeah. crystal clear, right? And so we kind of use, and it's not through bullets, it's it's more on a, a paragraph under each one. So, you know, team-driven would have, what does that mean? What are the behaviors that fall yeah. under that? And, and that was, I, I guess that's been our approach. And then we update these all the time. So every quarter, if someone was let go or was mm -hmm. to leave the company, we will do an update. Did we miss a behavior? Is someone, and by the way, or did we hire someone that's just been crushing it and we're missing that behavior? We need to update with this new behavior. Uh, it sounds like it's similar-ish. Similar-ish, but different. And yeah. so let me describe a couple of the differences and why those differences are actually really important. Okay. So the first difference is there are many people who have come to understand the, the importance of behaviors. And what they will typically do is something like you, where they will define their core values. And then for each of their core values, they'll kind of unpack them into what are the behaviors that help us to live to that value. Whether they do it in a paragraph form like you've done, or they do it in bullet points, they're trying to get some description that brings a little more life to what that value means. And that sounds like a really logical approach, but there's something, there's, there's a, a key mistake in that thinking. Too narrow. That people forget. And the mistake that they miss is that if we start with our core values and we think about, all right, let's say our core, I'm going to make some up. Our core values are quality, integrity, loyalty, and service. And then we ask ourselves, all right, what do we mean by quality? What do we mean by loyalty? What do we mean by service? What do we mean by integrity? The problem is there may be some behaviors that are really important in your company that don't necessarily fit into quality, loyalty, respect, you know, service or, or whatever else that's yeah, integrity. Yeah. Yeah. And, we're never, and we would never think of about them because right from the beginning, we, by starting with the core values, we've now introduced a limiter or a constraint to our thinking Box because yourself. those would be the only behaviors we think of. But there might be other behaviors that are really important here and they would never even be on the table. And so I actually say, let's start with our behaviors and figure out what the behaviors are and make them happen. Yeah, no. And just to buck conventional wisdom further, <laughs> I would say if we don't already have a set of core values, we don't need to have them. Like as long as I've got my behaviors, that's what I want people to do. I'm not sure what the utility is of coming up with these core values that now I'm going to add some nuance to this because most of your listeners already have invested in at some level, emotionally, financially, or otherwise, some set of core values. And the idea that they're gonna just throw them out the window is a little too crazy. And so most of the people that I work with are like that, where at some point in their lifespan, they have created some set of core values, and sometimes they're really important to them. And what we do in those cases is we park them on the side just for a moment allow ourselves the intellectual freedom to, without limit, think about the behaviors that are important. We create our set of, of fundamentals, behaviors, and then when we message it into the company, we say, you know those five core values or the three core values that we've always talked about in our company? 
Well, those are really important here, but what do those values mean on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, this set of fundamentals is how we live to those values. Now, very importantly, we don't need to do a mapping of them. We don't need to say these three equal quality and these four equal team. We're just gonna say the way we live to the set of values is by practicing the set of fundamentals. And now that allows us to introduce this into an organization as an extension or a deepening of the historical work, as opposed to it feeling like we just abandoned everything we always used to talk about. If a company doesn't already have those core values though, we don't bother. In my right. company, we practice our fundamentals day after day after day in ways that you and I will talk about because that brings more clarity to all of this. So we live those fundamentals every single day. I just don't have a particular need. I'm not sure why I need to articulate a set of core values. Like what would that do for me? As right. long as we're practicing these fundamentals, we're gonna have the culture we want. I, I you know, I, I, I'm just trying to think internally here and, 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 yep. and as we update, we do fight or try to find the right value to put it under. You're totally right. But but if we yeah. can't find it, we, we figure it out. We just we, it needs to go on there because it's behavior based. But I think you're right. You know, objectively, if you think about this, it does add a layer of complexity. Why have this value with these it? behaviors? Why this value? You know, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. If we just had, if we could do these behaviors, and right. we'll talk about how we do them. If we could do these behaviors, why do I need anything else? So, Other than everybody's always said you have to. <laughs> I, look, I couldn't agree more. I like that. And I love that this is very different from a lot of the value creation exercise that we always hear yeah. about and read about. So yeah. even before, let's, before we, the, we get to how we live, walk us through your methodology for screening for these things, right? Because you're talking a lot of behaviors. Is it, here's yeah. the, you know, in our, in our company, it's, these are the non-negotiables, depending on where, if you're a frontliner, there's non-negotiables, but we don't push you on as something is big as innovation maybe, but at the office we may. How do you, yeah, you know? What, what I typically yeah. suggest is that as you're interviewing, you're identifying, I mean, we want everybody to practice all our fundamentals, but depending upon your role to your point, there may be certain ones that have more relevance for salesperson versus somebody in the warehouse versus somebody in payroll or whatever. And so I would select a handful of the fundamentals that are most relevant for that particular role and write behaviorally based interview questions around those fundamentals to help understand does this is this really in the person what i would also say is that as we look at fundamentals as behaviors there are some of them that and we don't list them this way but i'm going to say this there are some fundamentals that are what i call intrinsic and some that i would call learned behaviors right and so one of my favorite fundamentals that's in every single company that we work with because it's so critical to success, I call it practice blameless problem solving. So huge in successful organizations. Well, I don't think you come out of the womb as, a, as somebody who blames people. It's something you probably learned along the way. And we could teach you that that's not how we do things here. And so I'm not so worried about that because I can teach that to people. There are other behaviors that are much more intrinsic. I think some people have a heart for customer service and some people are just Empathy. like missing the genetic code for that. Yep. And so I can't take somebody who's missing that genetic code and turn them into a service maniac. You know, it's funny. So, I've debated, yeah. I've debated empathy with a guy named John DeJulius and, and mm -hmm. he really thinks you can train it. I, I, I understand you can systemize. Okay, fine. Walk someone to the bathroom versus, but, but the empathy making someone feel like you care. I, I, I think that's uh that is a natural. Yeah, I, I do too. 
Well, and what I would say, and if I use the example, let's say of customer service and, and empathy would be the same. My, my experience and point of view is I could take somebody who has a heart for service and put them in my environment and that's going to come out and flourish in a way that it might not somewhere else. But I can't take somebody who's missing that genetic code and make them into a great service person. So I think with, as it relates to empathy, my point of view would be I could take somebody who's basically empathetic and help them to get even more empathetic and have right. that show up in bigger ways. But if somebody just doesn't have it, I'm not likely to help them have it. Well, one of our line behaviors is is taking responsibility and owning it every time. And that yep. that is one I feel like, you know, again, fine, you might be able to get someone there, but we wouldn't have enough time. If we can't get comfortable in the interview process, you're dead in the water to us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you got to be able to take ownership for things. And if somebody and so, doesn't do that, you're not going to, it's not going to work. So, so walk me through just high level, the strategy and how do you dig at a fundamental there? How do you dig at a behavior? What, what is the strategy that you would guide um, people? So let's say you're, you're, you're digging at um, empathy. Like how would you yeah, dig so, at so, that? So, so, so let, me, let me take a step back and help you and your audience understand how we live these behaviors. And then that will make more sense as to, okay, okay. how do we take any one of them? So in a broad way, when I talk about how to intentionally, systematically create and embed a culture in any organization, I organize the steps that it takes to do that around a framework that was on the cover of that book. I call it the eight-step framework. Eight different things. You do these eight things. This is how you intentionally do it. And while all of the eight steps are important, at the end of the day, if you just cut to the chase, there are two steps that drive 80 or 90% of the impact. And those two steps are number one, what we just talked about. How do we define with enough clarity exactly what we want that culture to be? And we do that by reference to behaviors or as I call them, fundamentals. The second step is how we really operationalize this. The second step is something that I call creating rituals. So a ritual is some routine that we do over and over and over again. You get up in the morning, you brush your teeth. Some people before a meal, they say a prayer. In the US, most kids grew up learning to say what we call the Pledge of Allegiance at the beginning of the school day. So they're just routines. They're just part of how we operate around here. And the reason that rituals are so critical to success in anything, whether it's sports, music, or companies, is that most humans stink at sticking with things. We come up with so many wonderful ideas and we're all excited about them. And then we get busy and they fall by the wayside and they become the flavor of the month. And everybody's done that, We've all, whether it's personally or in our companies. Well, when something becomes a ritual, it's not hard to do. It's just what we do all the time. So the way we use that simple concept is we take these fundamentals, these behaviors, we roll them out to all the employees in highly interactive, engaged sessions that everybody participates in. And then we begin to focus on one fundamental each week through a series of rituals. And so, and I'll give an example in just a moment. So week number one, everybody in the company in every department, every location all week long is thinking about working on focusing on practicing fundamental number one. The week after that, everybody in the company is on fundamental number two. The week after that, number three, four, five, and so on. And we cycle through them over and over and over and over again for the rest of our lives. So let me give you an example. So in my company and every single one of our clients, one of the rituals we practice is that every time we have a meeting in our company, whether it's a project team meeting, a department meeting, a leadership meeting, a Zoom meeting, 
If there's a meeting going on in our company this week, every single one of them, the first agenda item of the meeting is the fundamental of the week. And we spend the first three to five minutes talking about it. So let's suppose we're on honor commitments. And so back to your question, we're on honor commitments this week. The first thing we do in every single meeting across the company, everywhere, in, is we spend the first few minutes talking about it. So what does that mean? What, what gets in the way of it? What do you do when somebody makes a commitment on your behalf and they didn't tell you about it first? You know, why do we make commitments maybe we shouldn't have made in the first place? And we spend three to five minutes, we don't want to take over the meeting, then we move on. But every single meeting, everywhere across the company this week, we're talking about honoring commitments. Next and how week, many we're talking about the next fundamental. And how many are there? How many fundamentals? Twelve? How many? Do uh, it depends on the company. Um, yeah. The average is between 25 and 30, which okay. once again bucks conventional wisdom that says you shouldn't have more than three or four or five things. Um, but the number doesn't really matter because right. whether we have four or 11 or 17 or 29, we're only doing one at a time anyway. Right. And we're going to do them every week for the rest of our lives. And by the way, go back to your comment earlier about what you've done with your values in that paragraph, it would be hard to take one at a time and cycle through them over and over and over and over again if it's a right. paragraph. Correct. If we've, got, if we've delineated specific individual behaviors, we could say this week we're on behavior one and next week we're on two, the next week we're on three. You can't really do that with a paragraph. Which and is so the whole the company, the leader of that meeting knows, okay, every meeting, except for maybe a huddle, which is only four or five minutes anyways, if you have something like that in your company. Uh, we would do it then. You still would just, just say, hey, we're, we're playing let's, homage to this one. Or yeah, you, let's, let, let's just talk about it for a minute or two. Got it. Yep. And okay. it just becomes ingrained. This is just what we do. It's how we operate around here. And so that's one example of the ritual. There's other rituals. But yeah. if we if we focus this week, all week long, we're talking about thinking about working on focusing on this week's fundamental. And next week, we do the same thing with number two and the next week with number three. And we cycle through them over and over and over and over again. Sooner or later, these fundamentals become internalized in our people. They right. just become second nature. They become This is just how we look at the world. And that's the whole point. That's how we operationalize this. So that it's not sitting on a website. It's it's how we think. It's it's our it's our vocabulary. It's our language. It's it's the lens through which we look at the world, and it just becomes ingrained in people. And that's the whole goal for this to become ingrained in people. And what becomes the challenge with that? What is the most common challenge that someone trying to execute? Is it just remembering? Is it making sure someone prioritizes? What are you seeing with your customers? What's the most common challenge? Um, I would say. Like anything, there is a chicken and the egg aspect to creating habits or routines or rituals. And when I say there's a chicken and the and an egg aspect, what I mean by that <laughs> is once it becomes a ritual, it's not hard to do. But until it becomes a ritual, it becomes harder to do. And so you got to get that ritual started. So there are certain things we can do structurally as we build rituals to make it easier to become embedded. And so one of the principles that helps to create good rituals is to leverage rituals that already exist in the company. So almost every company, you already have a cadence, a routine. Every Tuesday is our sales meeting. Every Friday we do our product review. So look first and ask, what are we already doing? And is there a way I could fold this into what's already happening in the company? The more new things we create, the more impediments to success. The more we can leverage what we've already built in, the easier it is. So in my company, we don't start an, a new meeting to, to, to talk about the fundamental. We're just taking advantage of the meetings we're already sitting in. 
This takes no extra time. We're already there. Most companies have routines and rituals in the cadence. Look first there. What I would also say is that in the design of rituals, we can build things into the design that increase the likelihood of its adoption. So let me give you a couple simple examples out of work and then in work. So let's suppose you that members of your audience or you, you want to work out every day. If you say to yourself, I'm really going to try hard to work out every day, good luck. If you do it at the same time every day, there's a better chance it's going to take hold. If you meet your buddies at the gym, there's a better chance that there's some outside accountability. If you hire a personal trainer and you got an appointment with somebody, you have an even better chance of doing it versus just saying, I'm going to try hard to see if I can work out every day. When it comes to, let's say, starting every meeting with the fundamental of the week, ideally, meetings should have a written agenda. You, you create a template for your agenda, and everybody uses the same template. And the first item on the template is fundamental of the week. If you do that, it's a better chance we're going to remember to do it every week. So we can design things like that that make it easier to adopt it. Or another example I've used with some companies, it's kind of silly, but it works, is you create a rule and you say, if we hold a meeting and we forget to talk about the fundamental of the week, which happens at the beginning when you're learning a new habit, but if we forget to do that, whoever's leading the meeting owes everybody else in the meeting a dollar. And you just do a little simple thing like that and you forget once or twice and you don't forget anymore. And so there are things like that you can do to design into it a better chance of it lasting. So I love that, you know, and I, and, and I remember reading about that and thinking just, just a lovely way. Cause we, we, I had one, never heard of that. And two, we certainly don't, we don't do it to that level. We would do it at quarterly where there's a group, but not to That's that. Not enough. No, not that type of cadence, <clears throat> but it brings me back to, that question of, you know, and, and this happened, I, I wrote about it in my book where we had created our values. We brought them to life in, in different, you know, different ways. Um, but I still got caught a lot of times with hiring people that didn't align with my values. And in this case, let's call it the fundamentals. How do you go back to now that I understand the ritual, bring us down, connect that with the screening process and where it goes right and where it goes wrong and some of the strategies around that. So, we always want to, when we're interviewing, we want to, again, identify the behaviors that are most intrinsic and most relevant for that particular role. And we want to, to write good behavioral-based interview questions around that. But David, let me stop you for one sec, because, sure. because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to say that there's got to be behaviors that are, I'm going to go back to, to my example of mm -hmm. taking responsibility and owning it every time. Right. I don't care if you're a salesperson, if you're a frontline employee, if you're an accountant, if you're a leader, that is a line in the sand. That's like a must. Yep. We start there, right? Would you, okay. or not, are all yours going to the job? No, I, I would agree that, that there are certain foundational ones that would apply with everybody. Yeah, okay. I would agree with that. Okay, so and you'd so start with those. Yes, you'd start with those, and you could develop good interview questions. So good interview questions, and, and I'll, I'll describe good interview questions and also a key mistake to avoid in that screening process. So... Good interview questions are behaviorally based. And what I mean by that is, tell me about a time in which you, give me a story about, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to hear what you think about something. I want to know what you did about something. And so tell me about you know, a project in your last company where you had to take control over it, or you saw something that wasn't right, and what'd you do about it? Tell me about that. What happened? What were you thinking about? And I want to just get them talking about 
what they did because it gives me clues to how they think about things. So I'm not asking them, so do you think ownership's important? Um, you know, I want to get some stories. So we want to ask questions like that. What I would say is really important for your listeners is that when we are hiring, and, and by the way, in my eight-step framework, step three is I call it selecting. So it's all about this. How do we select people who are going to be a good fit for our culture? Because we're not likely to take people who aren't a good fit and somehow magically transform them. It rarely works. Generally speaking, when they show up for that interview, they're a largely complete person and you're not gonna change a lot of who they are. So we gotta get good at picking the right people. Now, having said that, I'll be very honest about this. None of us are gonna bat a thousand at recruiting. We're gonna make mistakes. We're not always gonna pick right, that's life. And there are things we can do to improve our hit rate, but we're not gonna be perfect at this. Now, having said that, there are two very different kinds of mistakes that I see companies make. And one is acceptable and one isn't. The acceptable mistake is I interviewed this guy or this woman and I thought she was great. She looked like she had everything we needed. I checked all the, the boxes and I guessed wrong. I just didn't pick up on something I should have seen. I didn't read the signs right. She tricked me. I mean, that, that's going to happen and there, we can improve, but that's going to happen sometimes. Yeah. That, however, is a distinctly different mistake from the mistake being I knew she wasn't a good fit and we hired her anyway. That's the mistake we've got to avoid and we've all done it. Everyone, I've done it, you've done it, we've all done it. And the biggest reason that we do it is desperation. We're short staffed like everybody is right now. We're looking for bodies. We can't seem to find who we're looking for. I bet you saw this in the security business. You know, you got customers, you got to serve, you got to put somebody out there. And I've been looking and looking, I've been interviewing and I can't seem to find the right guy. You know what? He's got experience in our business. He's not a good cultural fit. We'll deal with that later. And then we deal with it later. Six right. months later, we're getting rid of the guy. Then we got to clean up all the messes that got created in the meantime. And then we got to redo the hire again anyway. But in that moment of truth, when we're truly desperate, it's really hard to resist that temptation. And we're all faced with, I mean, it's nice to say in the theoretical world, oh, Ron, you shouldn't do that. But we're running our companies in the real world. And in the real world, we're all faced with that challenge. And it's so tempting to bring in somebody just to fill a spot. And it'll kill you when you do. It takes a lot of discipline to avoid that. I agree. And I want to go down that path, but I want to rewind for two seconds on something you said earlier. And yep. I just want to, my experience on, on a micro mistake, you're talking, talking about big showstoppers, but the, the micro mistake, which you talked about in advance was, because I agree, it is about how someone's shown up behaviorally in the, in the past, how they behaved in a certain situation. And a mistake that I see in interviews is, you know, I'll ask you that question. Hey, Dave, give me a time when blah, 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 this happened. You'll say, you know what I think I would do. And, and, and uh -huh. the interviewer not interrupting that person say, whoa, sorry, can you, no, no, we want to hear a time. I, I, people are too yes. kind. Maybe this is a Canadian thing. We just let people <laughs> do that. And you can't yeah. do that. You know, no. I see that all uh -huh. the time and they, and, yeah. and I'll see it two or three times or they, they interrupt the silence and move on. Right. Versus give you time to really think about when you did that. Those are yeah. two micro things that I would add yeah, to that. Totally agree. Totally but, agree with you. But I want to go back to this, um, this conundrum of finding people and having yeah. people align with, because there's two things, right? Can you perform? Do you know how to do the job? And do you meet the behaviors? Do yep. you align with their behaviors, right? 
So in a lot of companies, you're right, I've been there before and I wrote about this, <clears throat> there is going to be a time when you need to keep the lights on, you need to get the invoices out, and there might not be a choice. What's the balance for you? And I'll tell you about, or yeah. I can tell you what, what, well, what well, I would. Well, well, here's how, how I would look at that. Yeah. I, I would say that we want to be pretty uncompromising about we don't want to bring in people who aren't going to be a good fit, no matter how desperate we are, because it ruins our company. Yeah. Now, having said that, there's, there's nuance to that, that people aren't a fit or not fit. It's not black and white. It's a lot of gray. And there are degrees of fit. Um, it's not either you are or you're not. There's a lot of gradations in between there. And to be perfectly honest, I would live with, there are some things I would live with in positions that are more difficult to find or fill than positions that are easy to fill. So if I'm in a role, if I'm talking about a role that I'm trying to hire, that you know what, I could find these people pretty easily, I'm not gonna put up with much. If I'm talking about a role that's really hard to find, okay, I might live with some things. There's still boundaries around this where you don't get to be in the company. You don't get to come into our company. You don't get to stay in our company if you're not inside of this box. But that box may be a little bigger <laughs> um, in a role that's much more difficult to fill than in one that I could replace that person in an instant. Um, that's interesting because I would, I, and maybe, maybe we are saying the same thing, but I would think the opposite. And what I mean by that is, and I was writing this down, I would bend more on where the risk is lower. So, so, so I, if, if there's a, a lot of people, so let's say you need mm -hmm. a accounts payable person, you need to get these right. things, you need to keep the, 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 the company alive and you can't find a good fit that, that, that you're comfortable with that behaves mm -hmm. in a way that you think is going to be, you know, adding value to the team. I would, I, I would say, okay, you know, we know that, that, you know, there's lots of folks that can do AP. We've been through three rounds. We can't find anyone. This is the best fit today because it's a low risk position for this low, low risk impact to the company. And now how we would deal with yeah, this, we'd point. say, okay, let's be honest. And when I say honest, I'd say, look, Dave, you, you know, that you wouldn't actually fit the standards culturally, but we're willing to take a shot on you. Let's do a six month contract. And we would tell the team, this is what we're doing. So do we expect that we haven't broken our own guidance on behaviors that there's, this isn't a perfect hire. And now what do we get caught is we let that lapse and then we, it has bit us. Um, but that's what we, that's, that's been an approach that I've taken mm -hmm. to say, you know what, you need to keep the lights on. Someone has to collect the money from the customer. You go out of business. And so if you, you do the best you can with what you have, if there's not a, um, you know, a, a, a perfect fit in front of you and I understand it's gray, but if the risk is low, that's okay. Versus, you know, you know, I'll say a senior leader, uh, this happened to me just recently, I hired a senior leader who's leading people much higher risk, 30 days out you go, you know, I just won't really, you know, I'm much more, I spend a lot more time with a, with a very specific role, senior leader, higher risk to the company. What are your thoughts? I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair approach. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good way of thinking of it that, you know, the risk certainly is a factor we want to consider. We'd, I'd add into that. And how hard will it be to find somebody who can do right. this? Yes. Um, I mean, I think about in my first company, we had a woman who um, her role was telemarketing. Her job was to make cold calls to prospects to set appointments for my sales team. That is a miserable job. You can't be a normal human being and do that job effectively every day. And so if you can find somebody who can do that, 
I'll live with some things that maybe I might not live with, with somebody that I could, that I could find easily. So part of it is risk. And part of it is how hard is it to find somebody who can do this? If I can find somebody who can do this well, all right, I might live with a little more. Now that doesn't mean anything goes, of course, your audience to understand that. That doesn't mean we're throwing our culture out the window, but we might flex a little more on what's acceptable both in hiring and in retaining the person, what I would live with from that person if it's a position that's really hard to find. Right. Got it. And I know you've got a different view on integration and onboarding. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah. yeah. So so the fourth step in our overall process is what I call uh, integration. Integration is the word that I use for what traditionally companies call onboarding. And the reason I like that word, though I don't really care. If you want to use onboarding, use it. But the reason I like that word is I think that integration has a certain connotation. It implies I'm I'm assimilating you into our org. You're becoming part of who we are versus I'm just telling you about us. And so I prefer that word integration, but I'm not hung up on that. I like what it too. I, use. I like but it. Most, most people like it. The, the larger point is that how you do that has an enormous influence over the culture. That I say to people all the time, if I went to work in any company, I don't care what kind of company it is, I would tell you that the first several days to about a week are probably just about the most important days in my career because these are the first impressions. This is where I'm figuring out, so what's the deal around here? What are are the real acceptable behaviors? How do things happen? I don't care what Ron told me when he hired me or what's on the website. What's the real deal here? I'm figuring that stuff out. And whatever point of view I adopt in those early days, I'm going to start to to see everything through that lens. Whatever that lens is, that's how I'm going to see everything from here forward. And so we got one chance at the very beginning to orchestrate every aspect of that new person's experience to create the way we want them to see it instead of leaving it to chance. And when we, when we leave it to chance, which is what happens in most companies, most companies, the, the new person, we spend all this time and money and resources to find really good people like we've been talking about. And then we basically throw them to the wolves and say, good luck. Or they spend the first two or three days filling out paperwork and you know reading forms and things. And we run the risk of some jerk with a lousy attitude grabs them on the first day, says, Ron, you're the new guy. Let's have lunch together. Let me tell you about the company. And now I've got a jerk influencing them instead of me influencing them. And so it's a huge opportunity that's overlooked by companies. And so if you think of the traditional quote unquote onboarding, Mm -hmm. uh, which is more of the softer things, right? There's our values, our purpose, not values, let's call them fundamentals now, sorry. Uh, And then training comes behind that. Have you shifted the, the, okay, so you're still following the same format. So, So integration to me is really the training we're doing to help them understand who we are and what we're about and the way we do things around here. Um, that's, that comes before job-specific training. So before they get released into the world for job-specific training, I want to brainwash them in a positive kind of way, but I want to brainwash them to, be, to see the world through the lens that I want them to see it. I want to do everything I can to influence how they're going to see everything they're going to receive after this. And again, you got one shot at the beginning to do it. Right. And most yeah. companies ignore that. I, I agree. And, you know, I, I, I had a, a guest on, geez, maybe almost a year ago now, Michael Salamane. 
he was saying that one of the things he thought was missing, missed in a huge missed opportunity, and, and, and I agree, and, and I've adopted the sense, was really bringing someone into where they fit financially, like in the financial ecosystem. I, was, I always miss that. And what are your oh, thoughts yeah. on that? Well, yeah, uh, I say that when we, when we look at a great integration program, and I've helped companies build lots of integration programs, there are three things that, every, that I think every integration program should include. And, and it could start very small. And if you include these three things that I'll describe for your audience, if, if you start small, you could just spend 30 minutes on this topic, on each of these three things. And then over time, you keep improving, 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 eventually it becomes a really robust program. But the three things that people have to learn are number one, what I would call our culture. So somebody has to teach them, these are our fundamentals. This is how we operate. This is what is important to us and not just assume that they're gonna figure that out on their own somehow. And by the way, the best person to do that is the CEO, if at all possible. Um, if it's not the CEO, it's the highest ranking person in whatever their location is. The second thing they have to understand is what you just referred to, I call it context. And what I mean by context is, You've just brought me in as a new employee, as a new team member, and I need to understand how I fit into the larger picture of what we do here. Some of that is financial. How do I fit into how we make money here? Some of it is understanding our strategy. What do we sell here? And how do we differentiate ourselves? And who are our competitors? And what's our, what's our, our strategy for winning in the marketplace? Because you're asking me to, to live that strategy. I need to understand what it is. What do all the different departments here do? And how does my role connect to what the other people do? Or what's our value chain? And where do I fit in that picture? I have to understand the context of how I'm working if I'm going to make the biggest contribution. So the first thing is what I call culture. The second, I call it logistics. The third thing that every integration program should include, I call it, uh, I'm sorry, the second was called context. The third thing I call logistics. And by logistics, I mean the mundane, stupid things you need to know to work here. Exactly. Where do you park? What's the combination to the back door? Where do you get more toilet paper in the men's room? I mean, stupid things, but we don't tell people these things. And then they're fumble along trying to get comfortable. And so if you just let people know these things up front, the faster you cover these three things, the faster that new employee feels at home, feels comfortable, feels like a productive member of your team the sooner they're starting to add value for your team. And, you know, companies just do such a lousy job at this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. There's just these things you take for granted, right? Yes. And you shouldn't take anything thing for granted. Absolutely. And tell me, this is probably more to a ritual, but tell me about the annual fundamental training. I thought that was really interesting. We haven't done that yet. We implement it, but I, I you know, it, we integrate themes of it into like a quarterly or yearly, but, but, but we don't have something yeah. focused on that. And I was really curious. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, let me, I want to add one thing yeah. even before that, because it goes to something you referred to earlier and it will tie to this. So you had mentioned earlier in your company that, you know, you had your values and then you had a paragraph for each and that periodically you would look at it to see, well, what things did we maybe miss or change or we need to adjust. And I'm often asked as we create a set of fundamentals, how often should we look at these to change them? And my answer again, fucking conventional wisdom, is rarely that 
that the language I use for these is I say we should work on these with what I call an intention of permanence. And what I mean by that language, intention of permanence, is that we're going to work on this and we're going to put the effort and thought into it with the expectation that we're never going to change it. Now, I call it an intention because we certainly reserve the right to change. It's not like you're not allowed to change anything. Right, um, right. It's there to serve you. But we're not going into it thinking, let's just figure out a few things and get it out there and we'll adjust on the fly. Nor are we going into it thinking every two years, let's do a review of our fundamentals and see what we want to change. That these are foundational principles that stand the test of time. And I think if we keep changing them, it leads to, for many people, it leads to confusion. One minute, Ron, you told me this was our culture, and now you're saying it's this, and now you're saying it's this, and it, what is it? I think these are enduring principles. And when I say that, I should say as well, sometimes when I teach that to people, their concern is, hey, the world is changing, and don't right. we need to be adaptable? And my point of view is absolutely we do. The changing world causes us to change our strategies, our product and service mix, our go-to-market strategy what our initiatives, our most important priorities are for this year, but not the core of who we are. These are foundational principles that ultimately stand the test of time. Well, I think there's two things, right? Because you have the outside world. You, what, yeah. you know, you have, you know, diversity inclusion. Okay, that wasn't so, so big before sure. and now it is. Yep. Okay, so you have some out, yep. external things. Those take a lot longer, but, but I would say even internally, look, I, I'm all in, but we've grown, we grow so quickly and there's this bucket, even, even at the foundational side, I say, here's what you know, here's what you don't know, here's what you don't know that you don't know. Yes. We're constantly getting into, we don't know what we don't know. And, you know, I'm just thinking of, of one example, because we typically do this quarterly. And, and, and I would agree, we would have tried to be as thoughtful as we can around our behaviors to say, let's, let's make sure we get this right. Um, but I probably have given ourselves a little more permission to say, it's okay if we have to change this. Now, maybe that's going to be harder as we scale you know, we're, we're now 30 people now, uh, you know, and, and that's maybe with moving on a hundred in the front line. So maybe we're just over a hundred. Uh, and so what I mean by that is, I guess in the last year, we had some folks on our team that were putting up the busy shield. I'm busy. I'm busy. You know, I'm too busy. And that said, don't ask me for help. And I'm not going to be vulnerable to help you. That was really giving the wrong message. Now we had missed that. And we said, look, to be a company that is really going to shoot the lights out, busy needs to be good. The behavior beings, you should be busy because we're trying to do big things. We had missed it. So yep. the time for us is kind of when somebody, it's, it, it tends to be yeah. when someone falls off or we've seen something that we haven't seen before. We missed it because a behavior is on either side, right? It's either a good behavior, bad behavior. What are your thoughts on that? Because yeah. it, and I, and I don't saw that the world moving yep. quickly, just business yep. and, and figuring things out. Yeah, what I would say is that we certainly, it's not like we're not allowed to change things. It's there to serve us. And so if we've missed something, we should feel free to make a change to that. What I would say is that my experiences, so having done this in my company for as many years as that, and having done it for 700 other companies, my experience is that if we write a really good set of fundamentals, almost anything that you would see would fit somewhere in one of those fundamentals. So that, again, it goes to back to if we only had four values and a paragraph under each, we might not have covered that. If we had 25 or 30 fundamentals, there's a pretty good chance that that new thing that you just noticed, I'll bet we could talk about that under this fundamental. It really fits there that 
almost anything you see probably fits. I mean, I see just because I've been doing this for so long, I've just go around the world and every interaction I can think of what fundamental would apply there. Oh, that's this fundamental. That's this one. Like you just start seeing it. So if the fundamentals are done well, I would say that 98% of the time, whatever you see probably could get covered under that. There so are, there are exceptions to that. There are times where maybe we didn't think of that. Your diversity and inclusion is a good one that, you know, that was new and yeah. okay. That's something that people weren't thinking about before, but that's pretty rare in my experience. So, so now you've got me thinking to the, these fundamentals are more standardized. Like it feels like they're more standard, you know? Well, they are to a degree, Ron, that, that having done this as many times as I have, there's a lot of overlap that the things it takes for companies, I, I would say about 80% of it is largely the same, Right. that what it takes for a group of humans to come together and perform in extraordinary ways is not drastically different in your company, from my company, from somebody else. We all have to honor the commitments we've made. We all have to get clear on expectations. We all have to take ownership for things. We all have to practice blameless problem solving. These are so foundational to what it means to work together effectively that it pretty much crosses the boundaries. The 20% of variation comes from two sources. One is there could be a couple of things, not a lot, that are different from one industry to another. If you're in construction or manufacturing, you probably have some safety rituals um, or fundamentals, I'm sorry, that you might not if you were a totally office environment. So they could be a little different in industry. The second source of, of difference comes from you as a CEO. There may be things to you, Ron, that are just really hot buttons for you that aren't to me or to some other CEO. And it's your company. Right. And you get to have it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But 80% of it, it's this is the stuff that makes people successful. And just to tag onto that thought, because it may be in some of your listeners' minds, sometimes when, when we talk about that, people get a little concerned. Well, isn't this going to make us unique? And what I say about that is that when I look at the difference between the most successful companies and the less successful ones, the most successful ones do what I call ordinary things with extraordinary consistency. They do the basic things just more consistently than everybody else. If we were 25% better at honoring every single commitment we made, how much more successful would we be? Of course. You know, these are just simple things. So it isn't that you do some, you have some fundamental that nobody else in the world has. No, it's just you do these things better than everybody else. It's execution. That's what separates people. So so I want to go back to, we we're going to talk about the yearly. Uh, yes, the, 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 the annual yeah. fundamentals training. Yeah. So um, one of the things that we do in our company is, in my first company especially, and we had more people, is we would do an annual training. Just, I mean, we're talking about this stuff every single week, so it lives in our people. But in addition to that, we would do this annual training where what we would do, it's about an hour, and we, everybody would go through it. And we would take scenarios of different situations that would typically come up in our company. Could be with a customer, could be with each other, could be with a vendor. And we would describe a scenario. We'd break people into small groups and we would have them talk about what would you do in that situation and which of our fundamentals would most influence your behavior there. And it just gets people constantly seeing the fundamentals as useful practical guides for day-to-day -day situations that we're running into. These aren't theoretical. These yeah. actually guide how we behave and how we respond to situations. And so in an hour, you could do three, four, five different scenarios like that. 
and it just keeps people connected to the fundamentals. We would do that every year. I love that. You know, I was thinking back to our discussion two minutes ago on, on you know, when you update those things. And I'm just thinking back to my entrepreneurial journey and, and conversations I've had with lots of startup entrepreneurs about, well, do I even... You know, and as you said, when you start up a company, everything is is really by default, but it's pretty good. And then you have to design things, right? You get yes. into trouble. And so, but pro- probably it's got to be challenging for one, two, three employees to build this robust list of fundamentals because you wouldn't know what you don't know. You might not have seen the behaviors to with that. So then you're just adding fundamentals as you go on versus shifting them or not. Um. I mean, if you had one or two or three employees, you'd probably wait a little bit. Right. Um, and I say a little, maybe when you had seven or 10, not waiting, you have, not waiting to have a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, and, and I'll say this not as in a self-serving way, but, you know, we've done this for lots of companies. And so we know, we know the fundamentals people have. And in mm-hmm. fact, I created, uh, I created what we call the standard version of CultureWise for smaller companies who just need to do this faster and more effectively and less expensively. And in the standard version of, of culture wise, what I did is I took the 60 best fundamentals I've ever written. I call them my greatest hits and I built them into a platform and people can actually sign up and they get access to all 60. So they could just pick the one. They don't have to think of them. Just pick the ones from the list that resonate for you. And we just make it real easy for people to do. Yeah, I love that. So that makes it a lot easier for a small company to do this. And so do any of these, you know, any of the framework, does anything change upon scale? And, and, and I guess I was thinking as we're talking, I mean, how we operate, how we manage meetings today, we just decided today at, at, at uh, on our Friday huddle, we're going to split the teams from finance and admin and operations, just getting too big. And so we're not getting the meat out of our huddle anymore, but I guess that's not a fundamental thing. You know, what, what changes as a company scales? Have you seen, you know, if you go through this framework, does anything have to shift as you really scale or not? Is it just status quo? Um, not, not really. I mean, the, the details shift a little bit, but the basics are the same. And so the basics are we, we have a set of fundamentals and we focus on one every week through a series of rituals. The details of those rituals may change and might even be different in different departments. And that's perfectly okay. It could be that the salespeople are doing one ritual and you know the, 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 the warehouse is doing a different ritual, but we're still doing it about this week's fundamental. So we wanna do things that are relevant. And so as a company grows, maybe there are new rituals they adopt or other ones that they let go of because they don't work as well for them. But what stays the same is this week we're on fundamental number one, and we're practicing it all week long through rituals. And next week we're on number two, and the next week we're on number three, and so on. You know, the, the, the give you a very quick story of how I learned all of this. I, I mentioned it in the book, but it, and it, it's important because it's done at scale, and so it answers the scale question. So, real quick story: um, my first company was an amazing service company, and I wanted to push the envelope to be even better. And so I took my entire staff one day to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Philadelphia. And we spent, uh, we had lunch there and we spent an afternoon doing brainstorming. And I asked them if they could share with us some of the things they do that make them so successful as a brand. And I didn't know what they did at the time. And what I learned is that really led to the creation of everything that I teach is 
two things in particular. One is that they have something called the Ritz-Carlton Basics, which are 20 behaviors that they teach and that uh, you know, are written down. They're on a little card, but these are their 20 basics. The second thing I learned about is a ritual that they have, which I didn't, they don't use that word and I didn't know about it at the time, that they call their daily lineup, similar to your huddle. So every day in every department and every shift, team members get together at the beginning of the shift and they do a, what they call a daily lineup. It's a 10 or 12 minute meeting. And the first thing they do in their daily lineup each day is they talk about the basic of the day. So they have 20 of these. Today's day number one, and in every Ritz-Carlton everywhere in the world, people are on day number one and they're talking about it every huddle, people talking about basic number one. And tomorrow they're on two and the next day three, four, five, and so on. And, and every 20 days they go back to the beginning and they keep cycling through it over and over again. So Ritz-Carlton has roughly 40,000 employees on five continents, 35 or 40 countries, hundreds of properties. And today, every single one of their 40,000 employees is in a daily lineup and every single one of them is talking about the same basic. Right. That's consistency on, at scale. Right. And I heard that 20 years ago and it got me thinking, that's just fascinating what they're doing. I wonder how I could apply that in my company. And I went home and thought, if I had basics, what would my basics be? I created a set of behaviors that I decided I would call my fundamentals. It was just their version of basics. I called them fundamentals. And I decided that I didn't think a, week, a daily cycle would work for, for us as well as a weekly cycle. And I created a weekly cycle and started to practice them every week. But it came from what I learned from Ritz-Carlton. And so if they can do it at their scale, right. you and I can do it at our scale. And I remember reading that story in your book, actually, that was in there. Yeah, it, right. it was very influential for me. It really so led two, to everything that I, I've learned and taught. I, I, that's fantastic. Two, two things I'm curious about, um, and then I'll open up to you to bring us home, David. Um, one, what are your thoughts? And I don't remember it being in the book, but I'm just curious on org chart. You know, I'm, I'm a huge decentralization. You, you create the systems, guidelines, checks, balances, accountability. That's a real messy thing to decentralize everything. That's where I spend a lot of our time, you know, trying to figure out new systems and there's a lot of complexity. What are your thoughts on org charts? How does that fit into this whole ecosystem? That's a good question. And I, and I, I candidly haven't thought a lot about it. Um, I don't have a, a very specific point of view about it ought to be centralized or decentralized. Um, it, logically to me, so this is just based on the way I think about things, not right or wrong, but the way I think about things, I tend to be more of a decentralized kind of person that if we're teaching, I want to push ownership to the front lines, that the people who are doing the work are the ones who know best how that work should be done. And so I, want to, I, I always want to be pushing things out to the front lines as long as we're practicing our fundamentals and we're doing them inside of a construct of this is the way we do things around here. Um, so I would tend to be a decentralized kind of person. In my yeah. first company, we practiced lean thinking and lean thinking is very decentralized. It's really about you know, how we get people who are doing the work to be in as much control as possible over how right. they do their work. But they're doing it according to a set of principles. And, and um, secondly, I'm curious about, you know, I was having a conversation with a group um, a few weeks ago and there were employees of a company and they were, we were having this culture discussion. And this happened a few times where I've kind of just said, well, you know, stop there. If the CEO's not on board, this whole thing's dead, you know, would you agree? Or is there, have you figured a secret agree. sauce? Okay. Yeah. 100% agree. One of the things that I say all the time, Ron, 
is in my experience, the single most important ingredient in the success of any culture initiative is what I call CEO sponsorship. If it doesn't start at the top, it ain't going anywhere, or it's, it's highly unlikely to be successful. That the man or woman at the top's got to say, this is a priority for us. Without that, we're not getting very far. Got to start right. there. Totally agree. Okay, well, that's good. Because I was like, I can't figure it out. And so <laughs> yeah, it's got to start there. That's right. And, and uh, tell me, I know it's one of the framework, but I want to just talk about coaching really quickly. You know, I talk about this in, in my book, Scaling Culture. I had an aha moment where I, I thought I was a good coach. And then as I was researching and talking to more folks and really understanding what that meant, or my understanding of it, I thought, yeah, I'm not a good coach. I'm a mentor advisor. I can get people motivated, but I'm not a coach. Tell us about coaching and, and the scalability of that within the framework. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that at the end of the day, where this stuff lives and dies is with, with, with managers and supervisors. That yes, it has to start at the top and we've got to get it pushed through the whole organization. But at the end of the day, so much, if I'm a line worker, so much of my daily experience comes down to my relationship with my direct supervisor. And most small to mid-sized companies really struggle here because they haven't been able to afford to invest in the development of those managers and supervisors. As we know in our entrepreneurial journey, so many times managers and supervisors are just people who've been here a long time. And so they've been here the longest and they've now been elevated to a supervisory role, but we haven't given them a lot of training or help or support in how to be more effective in coaching their employees on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and it's hard if you're a small to mid-sized company. You're a massive company, you spend thousands and thousands of dollars on this stuff. But when you're a small company, it's hard to do, but yet it has huge impact. And so, you know, when we talk about coaching as it relates to culture, we always want to approach our fundamentals from a position of coaching. And what I mean when I say that is we're not trying to catch people falling short or hold people accountable by saying, see, I proved it. You didn't, you didn't live up to that fundamental. It's not about that. It's recognizing that we, these, this is, we're all a work in progress and none of us are perfect and we're working on this stuff and we're trying to be better. And so when we see each other fall short, even peer to peer, when we see each other fall short of living to our fundamentals, we want to coach and support and help each other to be that way more consistently. And that's, there's a lot of skills to that. And it takes a lot of training to be better at that and teaching people how to be better. But when I see somebody, somebody comes to me and says, hey, you know, I don't think that person is living up to that fundamental. My question is always, so what do you think you could do to help them? Um, like this isn't something you just get to point out when somebody's falling short and complain about them. So how can we coach each other? How can we help right. each other to be this way more consistently? And that's the mindset we want to have mm. in how we think about our fundamentals. Right. Understood. Yeah. I, I think for me, it was more, wow, there's, there's, there's surface level coaching. I've noticed this thing and I've had some feedback for you that I think would be helpful and go there. And then there's, uh, you know, there's the incoming, which is probably less people aren't, aren't as vulnerable to say, hey, I need help with this thing. But I thought, you know, I just don't have the patience to do that deep code. We, we, we've kind of outsourced it to someone yeah. who's just very thoughtful, very, I'm like, ah, I just can't. I'm, that, it's I just, yeah, it is tough. Um, what else, Dave, what else have we not talked about that you're thinking about working on that, we, we, that you think would be uh, interesting to our listeners today? So let me that. mention one other 
thing that fits in the category of mistakes people make according to convention. They do it according to conventional wisdom and where I suggest something different. Um, so, and it's the last thing I'll throw out in that category. Um, one of the, the biggest mistake that I see companies make all the time on this is they make this too collaborative a process. And conventional wisdom out there is that you should gather all your team and do a survey and ask them what they think the values are and all this other stuff. And I just hate that. And to me, this is a leadership function. If I'm the CEO, it's my responsibility to be the author of the amazing company we're trying to build. Now, just to add a little bit of nuance to that, I'm a big advocate for the inclusion of the senior leadership team in the process, but I'm very specific in the language I use for this. I say that we should include the senior leadership team for their contribution to the CEO's thinking. So if I'm the CEO and you're on my leadership team, I'm going to include you not to make you feel good. I'm going to include you because you're smart. You got a lot of good ideas and I want those ideas and those ideas could influence me. But at the end of the day, this is not a majority vote. Right. It's not a consensus. It's not, let's make sure everybody got their you know, piece of what, no, it's what I want the company to be about, but I'm influenced by the people on my team. And David, can I, can I add to that? Because yeah. I would also say that most companies that go down this journey are because they hit rock bottom on the people side and they're going back to the drawing board. Finally, it's time to go back. And they have this mix of fresh, you know, vibrant employees and senior folks, yeah. and they are completely misaligned. So they go down this path and they're totally misaligned. You know, Dave wants this and Sally wants that. And it's a disaster. Yeah. And at the end of the day, and this is going to sound more negative than I intended, I don't care what Dave and Sally want. It's not up to them. It's my job as the leader to set the course for the organization. Right. This is who we are. Good point. You know, I, I, when I was talking about Ritz Carlton, and we'll wrap this up in a moment, but when I was talking about, uh, about Ritz Carlton, the, the longtime CEO and founder of that, that brand was a guy named Horst Schulze. And Horst Schulze is like legendary in the service world. The guy's amazing. I actually interviewed him on my podcast. Um, I, I'd spent, I had a chance to spend some time with him. He and I were both speaking at a conference a year or so ago, and I went to dinner with him, spent a few hours and picked his brain about how he created their basics and their daily lineup, et cetera. But he said to me, in his view, the two most important roles of a CEO are number one, as CEOs, we are responsible for the vision of our company. Where are we going? Not necessarily a fancy vision statement, but where's this company? What's the direction we're going in? Second thing we're responsible for is we're responsible for the standards of the company. There's a set of standards, fundamentals, basics, for how we do things around here. And it's my job in my company, your job in your company, to author and be responsible to see that those standards are lived to. That's the most important thing we could do as leaders. That's well, not you something know, you can abdicate. This is interesting. And so I, I do have one last question to David on the fundamentals, because I mm -hmm. found from first company to second company, what was missing in, again, I'll, I'll yeah. use mm -hmm. my language of values and the descriptors of those values, right? Which are really behaviors. Um, but what was missing was um, language that really talked about performance, which I didn't have in my first company, but brought it into the second. Did the fundamentals really bring out performance? Absolutely. In a lot yeah. of times, right. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, there's a fundamental, there's a fundamental in a lot of our clients, including my own, that I call it deliver results. 
Right. And it's about focusing on, you know, at the end of the day, I don't care how hard you work. It's, we deliver the result. That's what we're here to do. Um, and so, yeah, there are lots of fundamentals that deal very directly with performance. And, and sorry, can you clarify, David, is it a, is it fundamental? I can't remember offhand. Is it, is it deliver results and then a statement about that? Or is it just yes. one so, so, so Yes. So um, every fundamental has a title and a brief description. Okay. What does that mean? It's a mini um, value. Come on, David. Uh, <laughs> values are abstract behavior <laughs> actions. But, but each one does have a two or three sentence description that brings even more clarity to what we mean by that. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. David, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time. I was so excited to have My you. Pleasure. Where, where can our listeners find you? You've got lots of products yeah. and, and books. Where, yeah. where do we find you? Yeah, two, two best places to find me. Uh, my I have a personal website and my company website. So personal website is David J, like the, the letter J, David J Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com, or my company website, culturewise.com. Um, my books are all fundamentally different, and there's two two editions of Culture by Design are all on Amazon and on Audible. So you can get them whether you like. Uh, electronic, paperback, hardback, listening to them, they're all available on Amazon too, but you can learn a lot. You go to my website, culturalize.com is probably the best place to go. Excellent. Well, thanks again for your counsel and for everything you do in, in making people and companies better. Thanks, Dave, for joining us. Uh, totally my pleasure. I'm great to be with you. For more information about David or his books, please follow him on LinkedIn or go to davidjfriedman.com. To learn more about our books or our Scaling Culture Masterclass on how to build and sustain a resilient, high-performing team, please go to scalingculture.org. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a comment and share the podcast with one of your friends or colleagues. We'll be back soon with another incredible guest.